Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number four, Certain Inalienable Rights, Liberty in the National Birth Certificate. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it probably isn't worth knowing. So Luke, over to you. Well, so we're talking about the Declaration of Independence, which I have you heard of it before? I don't it's uh Well, when was that? Yeah, sometime in the I don't remember if it's the late 18th, early 19th century, something, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah, around the Napoleon. Quentin Tarantino may do a th- that's right. About yeah, about you know Napoleonic era, something like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're we're talking about today probably the most monumental document human beings have ever propounded. Certainly of comparable length that doesn't involve scripture, at least. Um, it sets off a chain reaction all across the world uh, in terms of uh, between then and now we see an inversion in the structures of government. When the Declaration of Independence is propounded, there are very few republics and an overwhelming number of autocracies of different stripes. Today, uh, the majority of governments in the world, for all their imperfections, elect their governors uh, and far fewer are autocracies, certainly of the hereditary variety. And yet, there's a tension in the Declaration of Independence between the, the, the general and the particular. Uh, the, the authors of the declaration um, are a very interesting sort of, of group of men which we'll talk about um, in a moment. But they are speaking to a very, very specific moment in a very, very specific place. Uh, the English colonies at, in the waning decades of the 18th century. And yet they're talking about ideas that are universal in nature, deontological even, not just existing at all places when they write but by the nature of their structure at all times as well. These are supposed to be universal truths and yet they're universal truths inscribed in the experience of a peculiar set of colonies on the cusp of a vast continent contested by numerous European powers uh, over the brief 
century and a half that it's been occupied by Europeans and before that by uh, vast numbers of Native American leagues, tribes, confederations, and kingdoms. When we get to the Declaration of Independence, it cannot be said that it births American liberty. We've already seen liberty as a generalized idea given articulation 40 years beforehand in Zanger's trial, given articulation even before that in the Flushing Remonstrance. The word liberty matters and it's seen as constitutive of the national character of the people living in these colonies. Indeed, if there's something that sets them apart from the metropolitan homeland in England and Great Britain more broadly, it is the character of liberty, religious, expressive, political, uh, representational. And is it therefore the case that liberty births America rather than America giving birth to liberty? Yeah, uh, I agree with liberty births America. Now, you know, this we could describe the declaration as the national birth certificate. The, the revolution had been going on for over a year before it's written. Lexington and Concord are in the spring of 1775 and uh, the declaration of course is not uh, written until the summer of 1776. So we've had over a year of fighting with our uh, mother country, with our imperial masters who we are determined to throw off. But yes, the ideas, the ideas were out there. We talked about them in earlier episodes of the podcast. Well, I think what is, what is interesting in the declaration is that uh, here is a, a political opportunity because we are finally deciding uh, not to be colonists fighting in order to have our rights restored or established. We are fighting to cut the tie. We are, we are just going to cut the tie between parliament, between us and the king, between us and the country. We're going to be our own country. But this opportunity was seized not only to say that and to explain the particular reasons why we were doing it, which the declaration also does at some length, but also to make general statements. So uh, that's what makes it interesting, perhaps unusual. And the other interesting, unusual feature of it is it takes uh, the particular liberties that had been uh, fought for and established and makes broad statements about them. It's making statements about man in general, about politics in general, about liberty in general, and about God and nature in general. Uh, it's, it's taking these as broad, sweeping terms and weighing them and looking at them in that fashion. So that's, um, that's another innovation that's, that's going on here, Style, both stylistic and intellectual. How, how original is the document? Jefferson sort of speaks out of both sides of his mouth on this where he, he in some ways with false modesty downplays his own contribution but also it's fair to say that there's a lot being cribbed. Well, he uh, – late in his life, he, he writes a famous letter where he says, I was – I was expressing the general sentiments of the day. Now, as you were hinting, that's partly a humble brag. He, he's, he's, he's not saying, oh, I, original eccentric genius Thomas Jefferson came up with all this. He's saying, well, everybody thought this and I just put everybody's words 
into this immortal shape. So he's, he's, he's forfeiting the status of the lone bard to become uh, the universal <laughs> spokesman, which uh, to my mind looks like a promotion. But, but he's also right about that. Uh, he has – we know that he has on his desk in Philadelphia in the days that he's writing this, he has the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, which has been written just a month before. This is from his, his home, his home state. He calls it my country. Uh, after he's written the Declaration of Independence for the United States, he says, oh, it's a shame to be so far from my country, meaning Virginia. So he's got this Virginia document on his desk and many of his words uh, echo words in, in that document. Uh, he, he writes them better. Uh, I, I keep thinking of uh, Mark Twain's line that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. Well, you know, Jefferson is certainly the lightning here. Uh, but yes, he's, he's reflecting ideas that other Americans have and have been talking about uh, for years. Now, Jefferson is unlike most Americans of his day um, because even though we tend to assume a linear rise of secularism in history, which is false, uh, we go through periods of greater and lesser religiosity and, and probably the 1770s is not a high watermark for religiosity. But – and you colorfully describe this here. Jefferson is not himself a religious man. Uh, right. Although he has uh, an odd interest in it. I mean, he, will, uh, he will spend some time as president of the United States editing the Gospels because he wants to figure out what did uh, Jesus really say and what are the bogus statements being attributed to him. Now, there are scholars doing this. You know, They take like years and years and they have committees and they have votes and everything. And Jefferson says, well, it's really kind of easy. I did it in a couple of days. <laughs> you know, and I had, I had a razor you know, and I just sliced the bad passages out. Now, now I've got the real stuff, which is obviously – and he says it was very easy. You know, it was like picking diamonds, uh, distinguishing diamonds from a dunghill. Uh, there, there, is, there is a wonderful self-confidence in Jefferson which can drive you nuts but, but also makes you love him. It's just a very peculiar uh, thing. It makes him a delightful intellectual but sometimes a dangerous president. Yes. Um, yes. But nature, nature is important to Jefferson and he, when he says nature, he doesn't mean sort of Trees the, and the biological yeah. world in the way that, that, um, that you know, greens might mean it today. He means something bigger. What is nature? Well, it's our nature among other things. It's, it's what humans are what they inescapably are. You know, it's not what they learn. It's not what their culture infuses into them. It's not what the laws have made them. It's what they are uh, at birth. And he, the, the closest he, he comes to uh, a religious statement in, in the opening of the declaration, he refers to the laws of nature and of nature's God. So he's at least entertaining the possibility of some prime mover who, I don't know, maybe he precedes nature or maybe he's infused into nature, uh, a la Spinoza. But, but uh, there, there is a, a force there that's beyond all human power to change or alter which makes us what we are and therefore we are beyond all power to be changed or altered. 
And the consequences of that is that a, a just, a satisfactory, a government that makes us happy must conform to our nature. That's, that's Jefferson's jumping off point. He also thinks that we have implications or that nature has implications for how we exist vis-a-vis -vis one another. Yes. Uh, we are naturally equal in Jefferson's view. In, in so far as we're both naturally the same, we're also naturally equal, which is to say that there's – even if the Declaration of Independence at times reads somewhat legalistically in terms of the, the, the justification for parting with the mother country, there's buried in these choices of concepts even beyond what's made explicit with the language of liberty. There are ideas that would overthrow the social order of the United Kingdom if it were to be imported there. Uh, to say nothing of imperial China or, or any you know, of yeah all right. the rest, and and that's in many ways what we see you know take off and run from 1776 onward because you know as we'll discuss in some later things we don't do a great job of living by these these standards. Well, ourselves. right, right, uh, but you know, and equal does not mean identical. Right. I mean, Thomas Jefferson knows, for instance, that he's smarter than most of the people he meets, or and he probably thinks he's even smarter than some who are actually as smart as, smart as he was. But you know, he knows there are differences in all sorts of, of qualities that human beings have. have. But one, of his, one of his statements about this is just because Isaac Newton uh, was smarter than any other man, did this make him the lord of the person or property of other men? Well, no, it doesn't because in some essential, primary, most meaningful way, we are all equal. We are all created equal. You know, we didn't like grab this. We didn't like say, "All right, we're all going to be equal now." We were created that way, and, and it subjects then institutions to revision, right? That yes. is to say, that, that the established order of things can be revised. How, how important is it? Do you think that if you look at the if you look at the names we've talked about in terms of governors to date? You know, Yardley, Schuyler, Cosby, etc. They, they run a different gamut, but they're generally older, generally of experience, military in nature, etc. They're functionaries, governors, managers, and administrators. Contrast that to the people who signed the Declaration. They tend to be younger. You know, many of them are in their late twenties or early thirties, into their early forties. They're, they come from a, a wider set of professions actually than, than these folks even though attorneys are overrepresented. Who are the people who sign the document? You know, Jefferson stands sort of above as this overweening personality who's kind of endlessly fascinating and complicated and people can write books about his follies and his genius. But who is the generation – who is the revolutionary generation so to speak? Well, there is one old old guy there. Benjamin Franklin is seventy years old, and he's part of the five man committee who's who's given this assignment, and they bucket to Jefferson and and Franklin and John Adams do make a few suggestions before it goes to Congress, which then edits the middle parts of it rather heavily. Uh, but the the signers, uh, as a rule, they many of them already have political experience in the colonies now becoming states that they represent. Uh, they have been you know, uh, local office holders or they've been uh, lawyers which, which gives them 
you know, entree into uh, official politics and official decisions by by the route of, of litigation. There are people who have already had their feet wet in terms of self-rule. Uh, the project of self-rule has been going on in the uh, British colonies since the General Assembly at Jamestown in 1619. And, and every subsequent colony also had an elected assembly. And uh, this was something that Americans were used to having and used to doing. And the, the, the stimulus for the break is that, you know, in England's attempts to rationalize its empire after winning the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, they wanted to tighten up controls on certain things. And uh, this struck Americans as something new and threatening and dangerous because decisions that they had formerly, formerly taken were being taken out of their hands now by the imperial center. And that practice of politics, do you think that's you – know, many people, it's to the point of being a bit of a cartoon or even a truism that you know, the American Revolution is a success, the French Revolution is a failure. I'm not sure I would go that far to describe the French Revolution as a failure per se, although it obviously – elements of it go off the rails and it ends in Napoleonic tyranny. Um, Pretty bad. Pretty not bad. Not a good look. Not a good look. But uh, I, I, is it the case that the experience of self-government you think underpins the ideas of liberty? I guess what I'm asking is you say that liberty is the American character and if, if liberty births the independence of the country because it, be, it becomes unsustainable for America to continue to be America as an extension of Britain under new conditions. Is it that the, ide the ideas themselves are power enough, powerful enough drivers or do ideas have to be embedded in the day-to-day -day experience of people? That is to say, do you have to have both an elite and a citizenry that has the practice of liberty in order for it to survive? Well, I think both are true. Obviously, they have the practice and, and the practice has worked and been attractive because the ideas are, are powerful and arguably correct. I mean Jefferson would say yes, yes, they are correct. Laws of nature and nature's God. That's what's going on here. One of the things that strikes me so much about the people who sign this is, you know, if you contrast it to the people who cite who sign the tennis court oath or any of the subsequent French documents. Um, now, again, American society is is not nearly as stratified as French society is. We don't have orders or ranks, but these are elites. Many of them. There are also rank and file. There are immigrants. There are people here who come from different stations. But the folks who are signing their name to this document ha are putting a lot at stake. Uh, they're risking a whole lot. Um, there is a wonderful story about um, uh, one of the signers from uh, uh, Maryland, sorry, Charles, uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. And he was, um, you know, it depends on how you figure these things, but he's arguably the richest of the signers of the declaration. He's a wealthy Maryland merchant. And when he signed, someone cracked, there go a few millions. <laughs> There's a bit of gallows humor throughout yeah, all of it. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is at stake for them? If they're Treason. They'll be hanged. Well, they could be. They certainly okay. could be. Now, the British, they do capture some of these men during, during the course of the revolution. Uh, three from South Carolina and one from Georgia are captured. Uh, they are held as as prisoners, not treated uh, particularly harshly and, and, and released. Uh, but uh, Richard Stockton from New Jersey is captured 
uh, in the grim year of uh, 1776, after, after the Declaration is promulgated, things do not go well. And the British are marching across New Jersey, retaking it. They capture Stockton and they throw him in jail. They treat him very badly. Uh, he is released, but he has to give a parole. Mm. And uh, his experience in prison probably shortened his life. Uh, there's another New Jersey signer who has to hide out in caves uh, while this British military operation is going on. So, so yes, there are there are risks. And look, George III had a clement side. He 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 was not uh, personally the monster that he's depicted in our Declaration, but. Uh, the letter of the law, it certainly was treason and people were drawn and quartered sometimes for being traitors. Yes, yeah, certainly we had um, the, the regicides who had, uh, who had killed Charles I flee to Connecticut, many of oh, them yeah. to avoid being right. – yeah, when the restoration takes place at the end of, the, of uh, Cromwell's interregnum. Um, the, the signers – when we when we read this document, we see the sort of emergence of an idea. Liberty is a well-established idea, but the political program and the theory of government that, and and it will become contested among these signers, right? You can read down the list of names and you see some of those prominent federalists and most prominent anti-federalists signing their names from the same states next to one another. This this document happens at a, an interesting moment in the revolution. As you said, the revolution has been going on for a year. In the opening months of the war, there's this peculiar moment of, of patriot royalism where the colonies are arguing for King George III to intervene on their behalf against the pernicious actions of parliament. Part of this was a rhetoric that they'd been using to resist the towns and duties and the intolerable acts and other legislation that had come out of parliament. The king has bad advisors. The king has bad advisors. All these rascals in parliament. The king's a good guy. If he just knew what parliament was up to, he would intervene on their behalf. Well, that ends when he – after a few months and he gives a speech to parliament where he says, well, we're going to put this down. Hammer and tongs, right? Right. So we we can no longer get away with that. To what extent do you think is liberty the necessary foundation for what – for the – iterations of government both in the states and federally between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution that emerges. Would would the center have held in the revolution without the idea of liberty? Obviously, it would not have held without the army and George Washington. We know that. That's just a ground material truth and who knows what would have emerged out of a world in which Washington fails. But I guess what I'm asking is Washington is a necessary condition. Is he a sufficient condition? Well, uh, no. I think you know, absent liberty, we wouldn't have had the revolution. You know, we would have sucked it up, made arrangements. Uh, there, there were a lot of Americans who were not revolutionaries. I mean, John Adams famously guessed that the proportions were one third were for it, one third were against it, one third were indifferent. Now he never he never took a poll. Right. You know, he's just he's just guessing that, but. You know, that's probably not way off. And and those proportions, by the way, do change during the Revolutionary War, partly in response to excesses that the British uh, and particularly their irregular loyalist uh, units here commit. But no, there were, there were Americans who were happy with the status quo. Um, many of them will have to flee this country after, after Yorktown, after independence. 
Others just, you know, keep their heads down and, eh, all right, we lost that. But they would have been happy to go along. And, um, you know, Canada today is uh, a pleasant place. It's not a terrible place, but they never had a revolution, never felt they had to have one. And we might conceivably have uh, gone along in that fashion. Did we not have this peculiar notion? Say, say a bit more about that because obviously Canada is a – well, something like 80 percent of the population of Canada lives within 30 miles of the United States. So there's a, there's a kind of the, – the, the nature of Canada is more demanding than the nature of the United States, not in the sense of nature and nature's God but just in the sense of nature and the landscape and the climate. Um, do you think that – do you think the United States given – the lack of the limitations of the climate really could have remained a vassal state of, of Great Britain or would it have eventually parted and parted in some way through conflict? Well, pieces of it may have broken off. Mm. Uh, you know, we had uh, Aaron Burr who was reputed to be wanting to to uh, tear off a chunk of the West and set himself up in sort of Buristan and uh, <laughs> conquered Mexico. You know, who knows? He was acquitted in his treason trial, but there was reason for suspecting him. Uh, so, so yes, I, I, I think the the already existing uh, commitment to certain liberties was important. But what we have to note about the Declaration is that it talks about. It, it talks about liberty and, and it talks about it in a very open-ended way. When Jefferson says that, that a just government exists to secure rights, he says among these are life, liberty and the, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know, we, can, we argue forever about what the pursuit of happiness means. But I think the most remarkable word in that sentence is among. It's open-ended. Right? Yeah. All right. We've got life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there's plenty of others which I'm not going to waste my time or your time writing down. I mean that is almost a vertiginous commitment. But that comes from, from his, his belief, the belief he shared uh, with his fellow Americans. This was not edited by the Continental Congress. They saw no reason to change any of this. This was all fine with them. So they thought, well, yes, we we do have the right to self-rule. We've been doing that since Jamestown. Uh, we do have religious liberty and, and they were working on that in New Amsterdam. We do have uh, the right to complain about our rulers thanks to John Peter Zanger. But those are only three and there, there are more and that is because of our nature, because of who we inescapably are. And what, what is then the pursuit of happiness? We have a sense of life. We have a sense of liberty as the, the sort of linchpin of all of these. Uh, I, I once heard a mildly heretical joke that the pursuit of happiness is the holy ghost of the American ideological <laughs> trinity. Well, um, it, the phrase has a prehistory. Uh, William Blackstone I don't think is very much read anymore but he was certainly well read in the 18th century, mid-18th century. He, he wrote a kind of a commentary on the laws of England uh, which was very popular there and also here because much of our law uh, had been taken from England. And, and he, he explains that um, man's true and substantial uh, happiness comes from Living, living according to his nature. 
Uh, and, and these terms are not created by him. I mean he's taking them from scholastic theologians mm -hmm. and ultimately I guess Aristotle is probably the source of it. But you know, this was the formulation that would be in the heads of men like Jefferson and the other delegates uh, to, to, to the Continental Congress, particularly the lawyers mm -hmm. who would all have read their Blackstone. So, so by the pursuit of happiness, it's, it's almost kind of a circular argument. They're saying, well, by nature, we have a right to the pursuit of happiness, which is to live in a way that fulfills our nature. According to our nature, yeah. Um, Blackstone is sort of the, the patient zero of Lockeanism in, in America. You know, Locke, is, as a lot of historians have shown, was not actually widely distributed. It was, he was more widely read among the sort of elites that would have been in the Congress than he was elsewhere. But Locke's influence on the, the framers is, and the founding generation in, more broadly is wildly overestimated in terms of just the availability of his ideas and their reception, especially compared to other people like Montesquieu, Berlamachy and whatnot. But Blackstone, of course, is the Blackstone internalizes a lot of Locke and tries to essentially put a common law gloss on Lockean political ideas, uh, partially to rationalize the common law, but also partially to to undertake a political project that everyone from Adams on down has has read. Um, this is a weird document from the standpoint of a highly litigious and lawful country. Um, you know, America has a dense population of lawyers. Uh, partially because of the the relatively free use of land and comparatively free uh, use of debt and bankruptcy already in mm -hmm. the country, uh, you have a lot of lawsuits. You have a lot of purchasing. You have a lot of things exchanging hands. Right. One one thing that Edmund Burke warns his fellow members of Parliament as the American Revolution is getting going, he says, you know, among the reasons that Americans are going to persist in this is that they're very litigious. Very litigious. Yeah, extraordinarily. Um, does the Declaration of Independence fit together as a legal document? There's a tendency among certain uh, political theorists of a conservative bent to see the Declaration of Independence as the founding document of the United States as a, as a matter of higher law and that it should also be interpretable along with the Constitution. Much of this is to try to, in my view, anachronistically project a natural law view of the framers and the founders uh, that, that doesn't really exist there, um, that they're trying to say it's not just about natural right, it's also about natural law. But does it carry weight? Is it, is it persuasive as an exercise in legal reasoning? I think it's bigger. I think it's more important. It's about, it's about the whole enchilada. I'm not trying to be flippant here, but it's beyond the courtroom. This is for the whole thing. It's the appeal to heaven to this, borrow Locke's this, term. Right. And this is why we're putting our lives on the line. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Stockton was not killed. But plenty of soldiers were killed. Had already been killed. Had already been killed and would continue to be killed. And one thing that happens after the declaration is written, a few days after, Washington has it read to his troops. Uh, the main body is in New York expecting a British dissent which indeed comes and beats them and chases them out, chases them up to White Plains, chases them across the Hudson, chases them across New Jersey. This is Hamilton's first act of, of physical heroism is, is in the Battle of New York. Yes, yeah. right. It, he's, he's a captain of an artillery company. But you know, plenty of them, plenty of them are dying. You can, you can go. Uh, I have gone 
to see where, where, where the men uh, who died defending the retreat after the Battle of Long Island, which is the first battle after the declaration is promulgated, uh, as the uh, American units were retreating across the Gowanus Creek, now the Gowanus Canal, there was a, a regiment uh, from Maryland which uh, fought to protect the, repeat, the, the retreat and they did it by repeatedly attacking the British even though the force became larger and larger and more overwhelming. And more than two-thirds of them died and they are now underneath an auto body shop in Brooklyn. And there's just a plaque outside which kept getting stolen in the bad old days because it was bronze. Right. You know, and druggies would steal it. And then finally they made it plastic, but they painted it bron you know, bronze so it still got stolen. But that's where they are. And, and, and they died and they died for this. Okay, they had heard this. This had been read to them. And this would be continuing to animate the struggle as it was going on. And people were willing to do that, you know, for a million reasons. For themselves, for, you know, maybe some Brit had insulted them once. Who knows what? But also because of this notion of liberty. That's why they were willing to do this and to suffer this. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.